Do you know what a pirate's favorite letter is? Arg? You would think so, wouldn't you? But me favorite letter is the C. I told you I'm good at dad jokes. That was, that was good. That was good. You should try that out on your children. Uh, I, I will eventually, maybe. When, when I get the, the timing down right, I'll try it on them. They are a hard audience. At least well, I can imagine people laughing. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. I always say that exciting stuff tongue-in-cheek because, I don't know, I get excited about it. I think it's very exciting that we could inadvertently say the wrong thing and get in, and get up to our eyeballs in hot water in a very short period of time. Ooh, eyeballs in hot water. Ooh, that sounds bad. Boiling water, even. Ooh. All we have to do, once we say something, this is live radio, by the way. There's no lag. There's no delay. We just say it, and it's out there, and we could inadvertently say something that was just completely wrong, 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 and there is an organization in Washington that's based in Washington, D.C. that would be more than happy to drop the hammer on us. Yes. Always exciting for us. The rest of you are like, why are they always qualifying the things they say? Why don't they just come out and say that's my opinion and I'm sticking to it? Well... Because we have agreed to limit our freedom of speech to function as fiduciaries in our professional life. And that's difficult. Um, we are not allowed. Now, it doesn't mean that people don't do it when they're not allowed to. But we're not allowed to talk about uh, the future in the market in any kind of concrete term. Well, unless we're talking about concrete the market for concrete. We can talk about concrete and concrete terms. That's that's oh. a separate thing. Oh boy. All right. So here's some news that's quite interested interesting, I think, to the local listening audience as well as our national folks. Uh the Texas freeze, what we're calling the great freeze of twenty twenty one. Um has triggered a global plastics shortage. The price for uh, polypropylene and for polyvinyl chloride, that's PVC for those of you that see it in um, Home Depot, has gone up from around $1,000 in the case of polypropylene per metric ton at the beginning of the year to almost $3,000. Uh, PVC has gone from around $500 to just over $1,500 per metric ton because Houston had to shut down a lot of its refining facilities and uh, Dow, for one, shut down all its plants in the south. Uh, Dow, that's the chemical folks, not the market folks. Um, though there are relationships if you look at history. This this whole concept of supply chain, we talked last hour about how China is the number one producer of plastics. Well, it's using Honeywell to do it out of their coal. So 
and and they're producing not enough plastic in China for all of the plastic that it needs to put into its stuff. So they're buying a lot of stuff from the United States, specifically from Texas. Texas was shut down for a week. And while shut down, those of us in Texas were ordering more plastic. I know, it's crazy. So we have a shortage out there. Uh, an extreme high price in in plastic that could last a bit of time because the dem- the global demand on plastic is increasing. Now Europe's doing its part in trying to lower the demand as they walk back into recession uh, on their continent. Uh, they are, you know, they were very proud of the way that they dealt with the original pandemic issue and that they handled it and kept their first wave down before the United States was even aware. And then when the United States hit its big peak, it didn't learn anything from them. Well, now the tables are turned. The glove is on the other foot. Uh, if you're German, you get that reference. The, um, the, the, the term for glove. Never mind. That's a translation issue. Um, their vaccine's not coming out very well. They've shut down the AstraZeneca vaccine for quite some time they've just released it back up but now it's damaged the public's confidence it was purely political and it looked to have more to do with brexit than to do with dealing with the pandemic it looked to do more with the fact that pfizer is a german company and astrazeneca is a uk company and this uk company is coming into germany to deliver vaccines and let's stop them because none of the scientists said there were any problems in fact they said there were less than problems. But the political structure said, nope, we're stopping you guys only to start it back up. But that's influenced the market. If you're living in Germany and you have a choice between a Pfizer vaccine and an AstraZeneca vaccine to begin with, most Germans go to Pfizer. If the government has just said, watch out, AstraZeneca, then you're even more likely to go to Pfizer. So politics is everywhere. Supply chain is everywhere. Why? Because we're all people and it's all the same stuff. Politics actually means people. And supply chain is just how we get our stuff. And we get our stuff from all over the place. So it's everywhere. Let's bring in some good news here. Um, Since the, well, actually since early last summer, Moody's and CNN Combined together, I think Moody's creates it and CNN pays for it or something like that. Called a back something called a back to normal index. For Moody's analytics, Moody's economists got together and said, let's give weight to the various aspects of the economy, the number of people who are boarding airplanes, the number of people who are reserving seats at restaurants, and let's see what normal was back in January of last year before the pandemic started to have an effect. And let's look at where we are on the national scale. Basically, how hot the the motor is running. Let's assume that in January we're running at 100%. So where were we? And we got pretty low. For instance, at the end of last year, the end of 2020, the back to normal index was 74, which means the economy was running at about 74% of where it was a year before. Well, they came out with a new uh, reading this last this week. This week. We're up to 86, which is a big jump from 74 to 86. Really good news. The economy is running at about 86% of where it was in January of last year. And we're growing very quickly. And that's a very, very good sign. Uh, So the increased spending, though, 
is kind of weird. The spending across the board on stuff, which is the stuff we use, manufacture stuff. Stuff. The stuff. I don't think stuff. you have to define stuff. Stuff is stuff. But it's not services. Not services. Stuff. Uh, we're spending a lot more money on stuff and a lot less money on services. But here's the interesting thing. We look at the recovery in restaurants and hotels, and it's very fascinating. The further south you go, the faster the recovery is occurring. Whoa, I wonder why. It could be because the south is opening up faster. That's just a... It's a, it's a jump to a conclusion there, but I, I would say that's a possibility. No, it actually doesn't work that way because everybody's opened up pretty much equally. It doesn't make as much headlines up that the North is opening up, but it is. Cincinnati, for example, is pretty much wide open right now. Uh, it has it to has do with winter. To, as if it was winter. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people that are eating outside the restaurant flow, a lot of that is people eating outside rather than eating inside at the restaurant still. And so in Miami, it's a lot more likely that people will be eating at restaurants than there will be in New York. What, you don't and think the, that in the Windy City in uh, the beginning of March that people were sitting outside to have their famous uh, thick crust pizza? That would be Chicago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so either. The Windy City is called that because it's windy. That makes sense. And the point is, well, actually, Oklahoma City should be called the Windy City, but that's beside the point. Yeah. We're recovering, and we're recovering very nicely. That's the important thing to say. The the another factor is the higher the vaccination rate in a given state, the higher the recovery rate is. So people are as people get their vaccinations, they feel a lot better about going out and spending money. All of these things are really positive. And then long comes an announcement this week. I don't know if you follow these things. Labor Department announced that 770,000 new claims for state unemployment insurance were filed in the U.S. on, on the week of 13 March. I, I don't know if yeah. you, were you, you must not have been talking to me when you said, I don't know if you follow these things. Well, I don't know. I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to the people who were listening. Ah, okay. Okay. We follow these things pretty carefully. And it's a lot less than the millions that were filing when the pandemic first hit. But 770,000, that's a lot. That's 45,000 more than we had the previous week. And it sounds, it sounds kind of negative, and it is negative if you're one of the people who got laid off. The problem, if you dig down deep into that number, though, something interesting occurs. Texas, which is one of the fastest recovering states in the United States from the pandemic recession, had a big chunk of those 45,000 extra layoffs. And I don't know if something happened recently in Texas that might have caused businesses to go under. Maybe, maybe, maybe so. Maybe something. I, I'm looking at a graph here, and the graph is, uh, uh, man, we're showing how nerdly we are. Uh, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the um, they have a an area called TED with a colon after it. The Economics Daily, and it's the combined charting of all 50 states with the average being laid out and. Looking at Texas on there, we have this, that our unemployment rate is kind of ha- midway through, but it was lowering faster, and then something happened. It was coming down faster than the rest of the country, and then the great freeze happened. Yeah, it's like I noticed that restaurant reservations occurred 
in February, we're, Texas was coming back up again fairly nicely. And all of a sudden, there was this horrific dip in February. And I don't know what that was all about. It must have been government related. Oh, no, it was winter related. Dang it. It's the, 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 the temperature is trumping government again and again. Every time we come bring this stuff up, this is, this is our attempt to show you that we tend to waste our anger and our passion on human-based stuff when the reality is the external stuff has a bigger impact on impact on our economy than the internal stuff. The important takeaway, I think, from the 770,000 number rather than 735,000 or whatever we had before is that there are a lot of businesses out there still laying people off. During the worst week of the 2008-2009 Great Recession, I put that in quotation marks, quote, Great Recession, end quote, the highest weekly layoff level we hit was 695,000. And despite the fact that we're recovering and we have net hiring going on in the United States and a lot of things are turned positive, we can't seem to get below 700,000 weekly layoffs. Yeah. And by the way, throw in, it's not the 770,000 is a nice number. That's the official number from the states. But if you throw in the people who filed for federal unemployment because they didn't qualify for state unemployment, meaning they were independent contractors, it goes up over a million. So in that one week, over a million people lost their jobs in the United States, which is an astonishingly large number. And it means that there's still a lot of businesses out there that are just barely hanging on and any little shock throws them off. Uh, we've, I've actually had the opportunity to talk to some folks in the restaurant business this last week. And they're having a heck of a time. Uh, they're, they don't know when people are going to come in or if they're going to come in and whether they're going to have to do takeout or what's going to be ordered. And so they have a lot of trouble providing the right food at the right time. So, by the way, and and, and I noticed they're hiring. They're looking for people who work for them again. Yeah. And that, you know, when we talk about this segment, it's not just the restaurants. This is something that's really important for people to understand it's places like Costco and Sam's. It's places like PFG, Performance Food Group. The places that supply stuff to restaurants are having the same issues. So this is an area that's near on the manufacturing level. It's really providing something or sourcing the materials that they're bringing into restaurants, whether that's through a big box or through big box trucks. Uh, the The... The food and the equipment, the ovens and the utensils, all that stuff comes to the restaurants and the restaurants haven't been ordering. They've picked up on the ordering. But then again, in Texas, we saw a massive dip in ordering of new stuff for a little over a week for some reason. Uh, and that Texas is a big market. And uh, Houston being the third largest city on in the country basically stopped having restaurants period, for a week. So just just be aware that there's some other stuff in the data right now that isn't well-defined. We see this, you know, you talk about the number of, you know, 700,000 is above the worst one-week experience in the Great Recession, which makes this pandemic, as far as employment goes, by far the worst situation that we've seen in the United States since the Great Great, Great Depression, and it happened far faster. And it's important to recognize something here. Many states, including Texas, have relaxed their restrictions. 
So we get these big layoffs in Texas, despite the fact that we've relaxed restrictions. It is no longer, at least in my opinion, the government governmental restrictions that are causing things to slow down. Florida is also having problems. And the issue is people are just concerned about the people who haven't been vaccinated and some people who have are very still very concerned about getting in large groups and doing things that they used to do before. Most people now know somebody who's died of COVID. And I said a long time ago, last year, that once people know somebody who's died of COVID or know somebody who got very sick from COVID and then just didn't recover, and didn't necessarily die, but they have what's called long COVID, it's going to cause things to slow down a little bit. And it is. It's, it's, and in this case, it's not so much causing things to slow down as it is causing things, people to be hesitant to get out there and really crank things up again, which is pretty wise considering the fact that the B1117 version of COVID is now sweeping across the United States, the one that was first seen in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Which That's, is far more just. It's far more contagious and it's more deadly. What they're finding is that all the existing vaccines deal with it. You may get sick, but you're very unlikely to go to the hospital and nobody's died of it when they've been double vaccinated. That's, those are numbers that are quite helpful in, in my mind going forward, that the vaccination is functional. It's, it's effective and we're keeping track of the numbers on that stuff. We get this question a lot. Anytime we touch on the pandemic, why are you guys talking about the pandemic? Just traditionally, economists talk about demographics and productivity. Those are the two big subjects. Demographics, birth rate, how many people are employed, what are things that are affecting their ability to go to work, uh, the, looking into the future, what's, how many new people are coming up? What's the birth rate? Uh, what's the education level? All of that's demographics. That's part of what we study. And a pandemic impacts demographics directly. So when we talk about this, we're not trying to give some kind of a medical advice. It's the opposite of that. We're trying to track it as uh, the, the real physical limitation that it offers. Uh, we've had people actually complain to us, why do you guys focus so much on the pandemic right now? Can't you just talk about the normal stuff in economics? And this is the thing, is that there's nothing else happening in the economic world that amounts to even 10% of what the pandemic represents. Uh, we can talk about interest rates. Interest rates are responding to the pandemic. We can talk about supply and demand. We can talk about supply chains. They're all responding to the pandemic. So the biggest single leading indicator in the economy right now is the vaccination rate and how well it's being rolled out. When we look over at, at Europe, their vaccination level is really low when you take the UK out, which the UK took themselves out, so we can take them out too. Uh, Europe is falling way behind on the schedule that it needed. And it's not helping that they are having political infighting over what kind of vaccine is out there. This means that I can look at expectations for Europe as a continent on what their exports might be, what their imports might be, whether their employment situation is going to improve or disimprove. Man, I'm using econ speak or get worse there. Let's get out of econ speak. Um, whether or not they continue in a recession 
has an impact on us. We sell to them and we buy to them, buy from them. And if they have less available because they have less people working because of the pandemic, it's going to affect us. We look over at what China did. Uh, we don't advocate for the way that China handled the pandemic. It, it was a short-term solution and it caused them to hop up with a lot of growth at the beginning. But the long term is they have to get vaccinated too. And they're busy shipping their vaccinations, their vaccines elsewhere. If they have a big outbreak in China, it's going to impact the United States there. There's an interesting projection that's being made by the World Economic Associations, including the, and also the Federal Reserve, excuse me. In the next one to two years, particularly, it's very likely that the GDP growth in the United States will exceed that of China. Now, that's not that's big in and of itself. China yeah. is project, projecting about 6% for China, about 6.5% for the United States. But it's important to remember, despite the fact we see China as big, the United States economy is still bigger than China. Because the United States economy is still bigger than China, the fact that we have a higher GDP growth or even the same GDP growth means we will lead the world out of this recession out of this pandemic related recession looks very much like we're going to start pulling by say pulling ahead we are already ahead of china and it's an interesting again social experiment in that china who traditionally has a higher growth in the united states will not do as well as the united states if it works out that this is the way things happen will not do as well as the united states for the next couple of years it may continue into the future that's just it's one of those really fascinating things. China is changing its model. They're cracking down on dissidents. They're cracking down on large companies. They're cracking down on entrepreneurs, uh, which they didn't do before. And they had this tremendous growth as a result of allowing the allowing capitalism to reign to run pretty much free reign in China. Well, they're not doing it anymore. Their experiment of top-down uh, dictatorship basically is running against our chaotic let everybody pretty much do what they want to do. And if you don't let them do what they want to do, particularly in Texas, they're really going to get angry. It's an interesting social experiment that's going on. It's been going on for 250 years now, and it's still going on. And I think we're going to win this one. So you can yeah. be optimistic about it. I agree. I, I think the, the concept of what's happening in China, you know, the, they, they need to get vaccinated. But they're not ramping up production. They are sending their vaccine to places like Africa. They're trying to make diplomatic friendship offers to include uh, the vaccine, including in Europe. The same way that Russia is making inroads to Europe by uh, putting more gas pipelines to them. And the United States is saying, hey, these, these are dangerous operators. They can use this as a political tool against you. They have before. They have shut off the gas in the past. Now, they've said it's because of Ukraine, but it affected Germany. So do you want to put yourself in that boat? And the Germans are saying, well, there's no other alternative at the moment. And the United States is saying, well, you could buy from us. And if you buy from them, we're going to get upset with you and we're going to put sanctions on you. And the Germans are saying, well, that's not a good way to convince us to use your services as a business. If you're going to penalize us for using another business. And we're saying, no, it's not a business thing. The Russians might want your country. And they're saying, yeah, yeah, whatever. So that's what's going on. 
uh, China is, it, it's got a lot to make up if it wants to continue to have the growth rate that it has. Coronavirus isn't going away. This, I, I know that's kind of common sense at this point. Most people recognize that. It isn't going to go away. We don't have the ability to vaccinate the entire planet the way we did before for exactly the reasons where we're talking now, where Germany is, is, is saying, hey, we're your buddy. Why are you sanctioning us? We want to use Russia. Uh, trying to get a consensus on vaccination. The last time we did a really great job vaccinating the world, polio, we just dropped nuclear bombs on people. And we came and said, hey, we want to be your friend. You come, let's get vaccinated together. And they said, okay. The political situation, the, the power graphic is completely different today. China needs to get ahead of itself or it's going to get behind itself. And that's the reality coming out of the pandemic. If they don't get vaccinated up the same way they shut things down, then the United States may have some economic issues in the future in that they still are the global supply house for manufacturing over in China. We're going to have to step up, I think. I think it's going to be sooner than we expected. I'm kind of worried about the recovery in China and people talk about, what do you mean the recovery? They recovered first. Yeah, but they didn't really ever experience COVID because they locked down so hard and that did influence their economy. If every time they experience COVID, they lock down again, then they're going to be a start-stop economy for the foreseeable future. If they get into overdrive like Europe and the United States in vaccinating, then there will be an established industrial output center. That's another thing I want to say positive about the United States at this point. Europe has a very, a very theoretically a very system for vaccination distribution and control compared with the United States. And ours is pretty much chaotic. That's the understatement of the year. Everything we do in the United States compared with the rest of the world is chaotic. Compared with China, it's ultra chaotic. Europe tries to regulate things and make them uniform from country to country. Our system in this crisis so far has worked better. Now, we've had a higher percentage of people who've contracted the disease because of our individual chaotic nature, but and we've had a higher death rate. But the... <laughs> the, the, the timing on that cough was pretty amazing. Let's talk about the pandemic. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. The, uh, but the point is, in the United States, our economy has recovered faster and more thoroughly and deeper than the rest of the world. It's certainly a fascinating, uh, fascinating experiment that's continuing to go on. I agree with but that. Let me throw something in there. We mentioned earlier, I think we mentioned it earlier that the tax increases that are the tax increases that are that are set up to do two things. Number one, pay at least partially for the stimulus that's been put out there. And we secondly, haven't talked about the tax on the air yet this this well, week. There's no tax increase, there's no bill in Congress. There's no there's nothing that's actually solid. There's discussion both in Congress and in the White House of increasing taxes to start to pay for things. Particularly, they're focusing on the infrastructure improvement. We do need to have infrastructure improvement in the United States. About 20% of the bridges in the United States need serious repair or replacement. And the more the infrastructure deteriorates, the harder it's going to be for the economy to recover. But anyway, to, to pay for this, there's got to come money from someplace. 
and to pay for the stimulus, not just the stimulus that was reenacted in the recent bill, but the two previous bills, somebody's got to pay for that. Taxes will have to go up. That's a dependable thing. And it's dependable because even under current law, under the so-called Trump tax cuts, taxes go up in 2025 back to the same level they were before. So it's important to recognize it's going to happen. And the discussion is aimed right now at people who make more than $400,000. The interesting thing about people who make $400,000 and more couple, a household making $400,000 is in the 98th percentile. So the top 2% of income earners in the United States would see the brunt of the tax increases according to the plans that are being just talked about. And again, this is not a bill. This is just what's being talked about. So I've often wondered, where is everybody on that scale? Well, according to the household personal income calculator, which came out of the Federal Reserve, if you make if you make ninety seven thousand or roughly ninety eight thousand dollars a year in your household, you are the you're making your average. Now think about that. Just a minute. To me, that's astonishing. The average household household in the United States has an income of ninety-eight thousand dollars a year. I never would have dreamed that in my wildest dreams. And if you you actually get into the ninetieth percentile, at about two hundred thousand dollars. So basically, if you make two hundred thousand dollars or more in your household, you're in the upper ten percent of the country. It's one of those things that kind of shocked me when I saw it because I'm kind of stuck back when the average person, I kind of got my mind wrapped around the fact when the average worker in the United States was making $25,000, which was admittedly a long time ago. But that's, well, If the average thing. worker made $25,000, the average household at that point was somewhere probably around forty. Yeah, that's right. I think it was 43000 So the point is tax increases are coming. And they're probably going to be gradual, but you can expect to see if you happen to be one of those people or one of those households with more than $400,000 of net income each year, you might want to talk to your CPA because it's likely to hit you. Now, you mentioned that taxes, you know, taxes are coming. The end of 2025, we go back to the old tax brackets. That means the top bracket goes back up to 39.6. This doesn't affect, uh, affect the corporate tax rates at all. Those are permanent. But on the books, we have tax hikes coming up in four years. I, I think people are still saying, well, is Biden going to raise taxes? Just assume taxes are going to go up. Don't, don't worry about who's going to do it. it. Don't worry too much about the concept of where it's coming from. Just recognize that it's coming. Taxes are coming. Uh, the Biden administration is saying we want to raise taxes. The reality is taxes are going to get raised one way or another. So how do you prepare for it? What is it paying for? So you just said, how do you prepare for it? Get with your CPA, say, what can we do now to be preparing for it? If you are looking at your income being the same this year and into your retirement, you might want to be using a Roth IRA instead of a traditional IRA for this year and into retirement. Because, you know, taxes are going to be higher in a few years if you put it away now and pay the taxes at the lower rate. When you pull it out, you don't have to pay it at the higher rate. That's not universal. This is where you need to, to, to kind of plan it out for yourself. What is this intended to pay for? And you mentioned this. You said it clearly. Bridges, dams, roads, uh, infrastructure stuff needs a lot of work. 
Back in the campaign before this presidential election, the one before, in the debates between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, the question was not, should we do infrastructure spending? It's who's going to do more? And Donald Trump, in my opinion, won that debate by proposing twice as much spending on infrastructure as Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was saying $275 billion over 10 years, $275 billion over 10 years. Donald Trump said $550 billion over 10 years. But he couldn't convince the Republicans. And Joe Biden has talked about infrastructure issues repeatedly in his campaign, as did Donald Trump in the second campaign. So it's not a question of whether or not the, the country as a whole and the ma- major political parties know that we need this, but whether or not they're going to do it knowing we need it. We still don't have an infrastructure bill. Uh, we don't have any way to pay for it at the moment. But this is the sort of thing that long-term reaps enormous financial benefits for the United States. Uh, and I mentioned last week that I played computer games. Uh, Sims, the civilization, um, you go through all the civilizations, you realize that taxation should be used for some very specific things in those games. If you use them on the wrong stuff, maybe this is what really got me pushed toward economics in general. They've got some pretty good models in there. If you're just raising taxes to give more money to the citizens, that doesn't work long term if that's the full push and that's all the taxes go to. You have to build up the infrastructure so that your citizens can create profit through which they can pay taxes. If you're not creating the environment that profitability is key to, (laughs) like good roads so that we don't have massive traffic jams trying to get stuff from one place to another or workers from one place to another, like railways that actually deliver the things that are being ordered or things of that sort, then long-term you're limited in how much you can grow. The quality of life doesn't increase as quickly because it takes longer for things to occur. We need to do this. This is, and I can't underline that enough. If there's one single action we can take as a country to move us forward for a good long-term benefit, it's infrastructure. Taxes are reasonable right now. They may need to go up a little bit. They may need to go down a little bit. You never know in the year of. Uh, Infrastructure is a glaring light, a big red flag. How many other metaphors can I mix in here? A dog that's wet in the house. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We got to take care of it, guys. And we keep talking about it and not doing anything. If if we really want to maintain a powerhouse of the United States, a place that the rest of the world looks at and says, this is how you grow, then we need to handle the wet dog. I read an article in the Toledo paper that uh, I didn't wasn't able to follow up on it too carefully, but it basically said that Texas now has the 11th worst roads in the country, and I have a tendency to believe it after I hit a few potholes. Yeah. And as a kid, well, actually when I was a young adult, when you guys were kids, we used to drive from Texas into Oklahoma. Texas roads were in excellent condition. They were always in excellent condition. We drove into Oklahoma, and you could think you guys could tell when we hit Oklahoma because we started hitting potholes. We called them corduroy roads. 
soon as we hit Oklahoma, we'd say corduroy roads. It's reversed. And that means we're spending less money on infrastructure in, in Texas than we used to spend, which is not a good thing. Uh, I had a follow-up question here from Jim. What is the median household income? So Jim knows the difference between average and median. Congratulations, Jim. Well, yeah, you get is, the Geek Day Award. Yeah, and that, but it's an important question because when you're talking about average, the people with the greatest income are throwing the averages off. You can't, I mean, we're not counting negative incomes in here. So people that have incomes in the upper millions are going to throw off the average for everybody else. So do you have that statistic, Andy? Now the median income is the people that 50% is the number of which 50% of the households make less and 50% of the households make more. Right in the middle. $64,324 a year. Now, an interesting little side statistic to that 64324 is that non-family households increased 6.2% from 2018 to 2019. Family households, where there was two members at least in the, working in the household, well, actually not just done, not working, but there were two, but there was a husband and wife, went up 7.3%. So get married, you make money quicker. But we had we've had some tremendous growth in median income in the United States over the last oh, decade, and it's up to sixty four thousand three twenty four right now. We have another email here, and this is from Philip, and I have to throw it. It's not a question; uh, it's him answering us as to whether or not we're exciting. He said, "Super exciting! I find you guys and your show so exciting that I have to pull over to the side of the road just to listen to the program." I'm not sure. I think he may be nodding off and finding himself on the side of the road. Economics being so exciting. Um, thanks, Philip. We appreciate it. Um, make sure and take your meds because this program should not be an exciting thing for anyone. Everyone that's listening, take your meds, please. Yeah, wait a minute. I find it very exciting. I find it innervating. I find it uh -huh. interesting. I, I find I, it. Have you taken your meds this morning? Yes, I have. And I talked to my son. <laughs> I mean, when else do a father and a son spend two hours talking to each other in a group of people? Yeah, and we get to talk about whatever we feel like, which in our case, it would shut down every conversation we ever get into if you just start talking economics. So this is our two-hour conversation every week where we get to have the conversation that no one else will let us have. Uh, if you would like to contact us uh, with a question or off the air, uh, you can email us at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com, and we'll be back on the other side. of. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff. Mac Lure. Uh, today we are sponsored by the word. I don't know. Ah, uh, yeah. So three words we're sponsored by. I'm trying to Sesame Street it, and it's just hard to do. And it brought to you by the letter R. And oh, that sounds like we're pirates. It'd be, we could be sponsored by the word deem. Do you know what? Yeah. Words. Do you do you know what a pirate's favorite letter is? Arg. You would think so, wouldn't you? But my favorite letter is the C. I told you I'm good at dad jokes. That was, that was good. That was good. You should try that out on your children. 
uh, I, I will eventually, maybe when, when I get the, the timing down right, I'll try it on them. They are a hard audience. At least well, I can imagine people laughing on the radio. Okay. By the road is more likely. Um, I've got a sort of update um, on the big freeze. Um, last week we talked a little bit about this, about ERCOT setting the rates and the commission and everybody resigning from the commission and how the government had, in essence, set the rate ultra high and then left it there extra long. That came out in a testimony before the legislature, the, the state senate, where they said, yep, we left it on for 33 hours too long at $9,000 megawatt hour. This is a big deal. Well, the state attorney general, who just as a side note, I have zero respect for, he, he has indictments hanging out on him. And I know people might hear that as a political attack. I am not. The, he, the indictment is for securities related issues that he should have known about as an attorney and are very clear. I know I'm not supposed to do what he did. And he's our state attorney general. Um, I realize I just went way overboard on him. He is suing a company called Gritty. We've talked about Gritty. They're a, they, they were selling purely market-based price electricity to everyone as part of the deregulation. It's the most deregulated of the deregulated area. Basically, you should know that the prices could fluctuate really high because you were right in the hardcore raw area Gritty's already filed for bankruptcy. It told everybody, get out of us. We can't change the prices right now. ERCOT has set the price. But the ERCOT also said you couldn't switch carriers in the middle of the crisis. So once you were locked in, you were locked in. They said they can't pay for it because their customers aren't paying them. They declared bankruptcy. Uh, our attorney general is now suing them. Uh, there is a bill in the Texas Senate that is uh, it's, it's designed to force ERCOT to reprice the energy charges from the winter storm. And this is what I recommended a week ago, saying, hey, we got we to gotta reprice this. This was an arbitrary government set price. The entirety of our deregulated period to now has only had very few moments where the government stepped in and set the price, and they were set fairly well. The rest of the time, it's set by the marketplace. Well, the marketplace was nowhere near the price that was set by ERCOT. So I hope that the Senate advances this bill, it goes to the House, and I hope they can do it quickly. But I'm not sure it's got the push behind it to get it passed when the attorney general is suing a company for not for charging too much for its customers based on a contract that the customers agreed with and a price that neither Gritty nor their customers expected to go up to what the government set it for. So the government is suing a private company for charging its customers what the government was charging the private company. I think there may be a problem there somewhere. What do you think? I think so, too. <laughs> Ken Paxton, for all of his virtues, whatever they may be, well, he got elected, so he has some virtues. Behaves oddly. Yeah. Texas is not in, a lot of his lawsuits are not in what we would call pro-Texas. They're more 
ProPolitica, I guess. Anyway, the um, I'm sure the, it raises. You know, there are a lot of customers at from gr Gritty that are really angry that they got charged the prices that they are, and I'm sure that they think this lawsuit's amazing. I think if they did a little bit of research and saw that the reason why Gritty was charging them the prices that they were was because the government set the price and now that the government is suing the company to not charge the price that the government set. I find some real problems here. <laughs> well, there's a, to change the subject a little bit, there's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. And, I, and it, it's come up. We've talked about it in, in concept, but we've never talked about it in actuality. I mean, maybe we did and I missed it someplace. Bonds carry risk. Even risk-free bonds carry risk. A lot of people don't understand that. Even even risk what bonds? So-called risk-free bonds carry risk, market risk. If you'd been invested in the 20-year treasury, constant maturity 20-year treasury fund, and they exist, or if you'd been, if you had a 20-year treasury bond out there, and no matter what you, no matter what interest rate it's paying, its yield of maturity is its yield of maturity was relatively low, but somebody sold you a 20-year treasury bond and you decided to buy one because you looked at it and it was paying much higher interest rate than you could get at the bank. And you said, that's a cool deal. Let's buy it. And you bought it at the beginning of this year. You would, If you went to, mar to, to market right now, on average, you would see that the value of your purchase has declined 15%. And the most interesting thing about that is you can't hold that thing long enough to recover. The interest rate it's paying versus inflation is set up in such a way right now that no matter how long you hold it, you'll never recover your purchase price. People don't, sometimes people don't understand. Bonds are in some ways far more complex than stocks. Yes, it's going to pay you a certain amount of money each month or each quarter or each year. And it's going to do that very regularly. The question is, what do you get back at the end? And the answer is sometimes a lot less than you paid for the bond. So this is one of those things that, People just don't get it when it comes to bonds in many cases. They look at a bond. There are bonds literally out there that are paying government bonds, treasury bonds that are paying 5 and 6% still. But they don't pay 5 and 6% of what you pay for them. They pay 5 or 6% on the face value that's going to be paid back at the tail end. And if you add up all the payments you get, pay your taxes on it, or even if you don't pay taxes on it in an IRA, and you look at what you get back at the end, what is the interest, what is the internal rate of return on that going to be? And in many cases, it's below zero right now. So there is this continual threat of people investing in bonds, thinking they're completely safe and completely secure. To give you an example, we talked about earlier in the show, the S&P 500 is up for the year about 4%, the mid-cap index uh, that we follow is up about 15, 14, 15% this year. And mid-length mid treasury bonds, mid to long, about 20-year, the average 20-year treasury bond is down 15%. That's one of those things that I think a lot of people don't appreciate. They think if I buy a treasury bond, I'll get my money back. There's no risk of loss. In fact, unless you buy it directly from the treasury, which you can do, but it takes some serious effort, you're probably buying it at some price different than the face value of the treasury. Treasury. In many cases, those face values that you buy it from are considerably higher than the, the not the face value, but the market value is considerably higher because people who bought them when interest rates were much higher and are selling them now get more money than they paid for them. But I th think we have seen the bottom in a long interest rate cycle. 
I've been saying this for several years, but it seems to me like we have seen the bottom. The bottom occurred in 2020. From here on out, for the next probably at least a decade, I would expect I would expect interest rates will continue to rise. They're going to bump around, but they're going to continue to rise. When you hold a portfolio of bonds in a rising interest rate environment, you see the value of that portfolio decline over time. There you go. That that's I think from the perspective of most people. When you say bonds and stocks, they think bonds are safe, stocks are dangerous. And that has a lot to do with us having been in a dropping interest rate environment for a generation, maybe longer than a generation, that it's been since the the early 80s that interest rates have been coming down. That is 40 years now. That is most professional people's entire lifetime, they've only known interest rates going down, and that has a positive impact on bonds. And if you own a bond from 10 years ago that you bought this week, and it's paying a five, and I'm going to put air quotes around this, so you should imagine them on the radio, 5%, like you said, if you're just holding it in a normal account, it's not an IRA, then you're paying taxes on 5% payments as interest, but you may have you you may have purchased the bond at a much much higher price, which means you're not getting five percent. That you're actually paying gains on some of the extra price that you're going to lose when maturity takes place. If you bought the thing for eleven hundred dollars and it's worth a thousand dollars, and you're getting paid. Uh, $50 on it, then $50 is not 5% of $1,100. And that's something that people miss out on. They, they don't see that there's a connection between these numbers until they're in the, in the boat and going, oh, we've got water at the bottom here. What's going on? Uh, you, you may wind up paying taxes on your losses uh, if you've paid taxes on a 5% interest rate that is really partially principal. Another factoid floating around out there to change the subject. The International Energy Association, so the International Energy Association, International Energy Agency, IAEA, which does a pretty, yeah. which does a pretty good job of forecasting what's going to happen with fuels unless there's a pandemic, has declared that we have hit peak demand for gasoline. It's past us. Going into the future, gasoline demand will drop. And that is electric vehicles are becoming a thing of reality. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next year week.